I'm sure you're aware of the fact that when you're at work, there are some things that your boss gets to do that you don't get to do. Because he is the boss, he is able to do things that you're not able to do. Unless, of course, you are the boss. Now, if you are the boss, that means you get to do things others can't do. But typically, the boss does what others are not allowed to do. Same thing at school. When you kids go to school, uh, at whatever level you are in, you understand that the teacher gets to do things that you don't get to do because the teacher just has that privilege. And because of the position of teacher over students, the teacher has rights to do certain things that you don't. It's also true in our homes. You kids understand that parents, or at least you should understand, that parents are privileged to do things that the children are not privileged to do. That's the way it is. For instance, I remember when our kids were little, they would beg us to stay up late at night. And we said, no, you got to go to bed. We would stay up later. They had to go to bed because we're parents, they're kids. Now, there, there becomes a point in time when that reverses and the parents want to go to bed earlier and the kids stay up later. But you know what I'm talking about. Parents have the right to do things that the children don't in the home. That's just the way it is. And so we're talking about situations where certain people have rights because of their position, their role, they can do things that others can't. This morning, we want to spend some time talking about something God is able to do, but he doesn't let us do. Think about that for a minute. God is able to do something, and he's capable of doing it, but he does not allow us to do that. And I have in mind what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Rekha shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. We understand that we are here told not to use that expression, not to call someone a fool. We're not allowed to do that. To us, it is a forbidden thing. I think... Clearly, the reason why is because we're imperfect in our judgments and we can't read people's hearts. We're not able to make that determination. But God can. God does read hearts and God is able to make that determination. And sometimes God identifies people as fools. So we're not able to do that. We're not allowed to do that. It's forbidden to us to call someone a fool. But God in the Bible calls some people fools And this morning, what we want to do in our study is to look at those ones that the Bible identifies as fools to see what we can learn from that. It should be worthwhile to us to know the ones that God thinks are foolish in the way that they're doing their business. We can learn from that. And then, of course, the goal will be to avoid falling into those categories, being one that God would call a fool. As we begin our study, and before we get further into it, let us stop here to thank you for being present. We appreciate you very much. Uh, we, we always draw great encouragement from the time that we can spend together when we come together both for Bible study and for worship. And we're glad that you have come to be a part of this today. We certainly uh, have a, a, a primary purpose to glorify God as we worship Him this morning. We certainly hope that will be accomplished but we also have a, a high priority in being able to edify, encourage, and build up one another. And we believe that will happen too if we are open to the things that we're doing today, if we're receptive uh, to, to, the, to the 
practice some teaching that we're engaged in here during this time together. Thanks for being here this morning. Let's talk about some people that the Bible calls fools. First on that list would be those who say that there is no God. Proverb, or excuse me, Psalms 14, verse 1. Psalms 14, verse 1 says simply, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so it's a foolish thing to say there is no God. Why is that so? Why is it a foolish thing to say that there is no God? Well, the reason why, of course, is because there is such abundant evidence that completely surrounds us in this physical universe. Just look. Look at all that there is. And to say that there is not a God behind these things is absolutely foolish. There's just abundance of evidence. Sometimes you hear people talk about the fact that to believe in God and to, and to pursue religion takes a blind leap of faith. You've heard that expression, a blind leap of faith. I think it's completely erroneous to describe it as such. God doesn't expect us to take a blind leap of faith. In other words, there's, the idea of that is there's no proof, there's no reason to be doing this, I'm just going to do it anyway. That's the blind leap of faith. And, a lot of, uh, and skeptics and doubters and atheists say, you just have to make a blind leap of faith if you're going to be a religious person. No, that is absolutely false. God has given us all kinds of evidence and asked us to draw a reasonable conclusion based upon the evidence that is there. We're here. The universe exists. And there's all kinds of abundance proof of the design of the universe uh, from the grand scale of it on the massive size of it to the very minute microscopic elements of it, there's fantastic evidence of design. Maybe to illustrate it in a very simple way, take a pile of wood. Now, sometimes my, my garage looks like that. Hopefully, usually it's better than that, just a random stack of wood. But let's say that I had this stack of wood, just a jumbled up pile of scrap lumber, laying out in my garage, and I left it there. I didn't, didn't stack it neatly or do anything else to it. I just left that jumbled pile of rough lumber laying there in the garage. And the next day, I came out there, and there was a finished grandfather clock sitting where that pile of lumber had been the day before. If I told you that, what would you think? You'd think I'd absolutely lost my mind, right? There is no way that that could possibly have happened. No right-thinking person would accept that story at all. There's no way that you can go from disorder to order. There's no way that you can go from random chaos to evident design and function. Everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows that. Any logical person would say that clock was designed and built by someone. It didn't happen on its own. Now, if we, can, if we can understand that, then we can understand why it is a foolish thing for anyone to say there is no God. Look at this universe. As we said earlier, look at it on its massive scale, but then look at it in, in its minute perfection you look and you see that there is plenty of evidence for God. Therefore, anyone who says there is no God is, by God's own estimation, just a fool. It takes a fool to say there is no God. The Bible also says that people are fools when they leave God out of their plans. 
I want to draw your specific attention to the text that Wade read for us earlier from Luke chapter 12, beginning verse 16. This is a parable that Jesus said, and it's well remembered. He said, the grant of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, not rich toward God. When you read the story uh, about this farmer, think about this. Uh, he was a, a real success story. If he lived in the modern day, my guess is that uh, the, the local newspaper might be running a story about this man and the great success he had had in his farming business. In fact, he might be one of those kind of farmers that they, they bring they bring other farmers to his farm to study his methods and techniques to see what they can learn from him. I mean, he's so successful and he's so effective in doing what he does that other people want to know what are you doing, how you do it. I'd like to imitate you, see if I could have just a measure of the same kind of success that you have had. This guy is tremendously successful as a farmer. And yet the problem was that he was all about self and he had failed to include God in his plans. I know as you've studied this parable before, you've, you've engaged in the exercise of going through there and noticing how many pronouns he used in reference to himself. It was all about me and my stuff, and nothing about God in any of his estimation. And when he thought about his success, all he thought about was how that he might use it to his own gratification, he had no thought for God whatsoever. And it is for that reason. It wasn't because he was successful. It was for the fact that he forgot to even think about God, to be grateful or to include God in his planning, that God said to him, thou fool. God is the one who said that. In men's estimation, as we said, he would not have been foolish. He would have been tremendously successful, as men might measure him, but in God's eyes, he was a fool because he had left God out of all consideration. Now, what's interesting about this parable is Jesus said that that story could pertain to us. So is he. That is, Jesus saying, anyone else who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God is the same kind of fool that this man was. And therefore, although we live all these years later, and while most of us are not even engaged in the farming profession, we could be in the same category as him because if we fail to include God in our plans, then we are foolish. The problem, of course, is that we're all racing toward an appointment with death and judgment. In Hebrews 9, verse 27, it says, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Think about, try to imagine this scenario. You're in a car, and you're flying down the highway, and you've already passed two signs that have said, bridge out, bridge out one mile. And then the next sign said, bridge out a half a mile. And you haven't let your foot off the gas at all. You haven't done anything to change your course. And you come to that next sign that says, bridge out. 1,500 feet, and you just keep flying on, and you never slow down. 
why aren't you paying attention to the warnings? Why aren't you doing something in preparation of the fact that the bridge is out up there and you're flying toward it? Well, here's the bridge that we're coming upon. Death and judgment. You're racing toward that. Every one of us here this morning, we're flying toward that destination. To know that and not make any preparation for it, to not even include God in your thoughts and in your life and in, in what you're doing, is a foolish thing. It is a foolish thing to leave God out of your plans. God says those people are fools. So, again, remembering that we're not privileged to use this kind of terminology. We can't identify people this way, but God can. God said people are fools who say that there is no God and who leave God out of their plans. Another group that the Bible identifies as fools are those who hear the Word of God but fail to obey it. The text that we're going to reference next is very familiar to our little kids in their Bible classes. They sing the song about the wise man and the foolish man, the wise builder and the foolish builder. We know that song well. Our kids could sing it for us. We could all probably sing it, remembering it from our days in Bible classes. But the, the, the song, of course, is based upon the famous conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus is bringing to a conclusion probably the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning verse 24, he said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the wind blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Notice he first describes the wise man. And the wise man was the one who heard the word and did the things that he was told to do. That person is a wise man. But the man who hears and does not do the things that the Scripture tells him to do, he's a foolish man. Think about, the, think about what Jesus said. The wise man is like a fellow who builds his house upon a, a rock, upon a solid foundation. We all understand the importance of that. Trent and Michelle are building a new house, and the very first thing that had to be done there was to get that foundation right. I mean, you might as well not go on or, and do anything else. You don't have that foundation right. Everybody understands, you build a house, you better have it on a solid foundation because you're just asking for trouble if you don't. Nobody would build a house like the foolish man, building his house on the sand. I mean, that's the, that's the worst case scenario, right? Because there, there's nothing solid about sand at all. Uh, even the wind can shift the sand, let alone water. Uh, you build your house on the sand and it's going to fall down. That would be an absolutely foolish thing to do. Jesus says that to, to hear the Word, to know that there's a God, and to hear His Word and not obey it is a foolish thing. The Scriptures put a lot of stress on the importance of doing what we're told to do. Not just believing, not just acknowledging, not just accepting the things that the Scripture says, but actually doing what we're told to do. If we're going to be wise and not foolish... When we hear what God wants, then we must do it. Notice just a few verses that stress the importance of doing. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, 
shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. He got to do the will of the Father. In Luke 6, verse 46, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It doesn't even make sense to call Jesus Lord and then not do what he says to do. In John chapter 13, verse 17, If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. It's not enough just to know these things to be blessed and happy. You have to do them. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. We're going to judgment, and, it's, and our judgment is going to be based upon the things we have done. Not what you believed, not what you acknowledged, not what you accepted, not what you intended to do. Our judgment is going to be based upon what we've done. And so there's a real importance placed upon obeying the will of God. You understand that. But it's a foolish thing to know and fail to obey. Do you see a progression here? There are some foolish people who say there is no God. They're certainly foolish. But even among some who know there is a God, they remain foolish because they, they don't incorporate God into their plans. And then there are those who are foolish because they've taken the time to understand what God wants them to do, but they don't do it. And they're foolish too. But that's not the, the full spectrum of the ones the Bible calls foolish. There's one more that we've got to include here. And, and those are the ones who obey, but then turn away from the truth. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul said, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ and to another gospel. Now, we might stop there for just a minute to describe what was going on uh, among these Galatians. Paul had been instrumental in teaching them the truth. They understood it and obeyed it and became Christians. But subsequent to that, some false teachers had come around there and had been infecting them with false doctrines. And, and they had accepted that false teaching and thus were diverting away from the, the true course that they should be following. And so the problem was, though they once knew the truth, now they'd let someone lead them away, and they weren't, they weren't remaining obedient to the truth that they had been taught. And because of that, in chapter 3 at verse 1, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And so... They had known the truth, but some false teachers had been influencing them, and they had followed those false teachers. And Paul said that they were foolish because now they were not any longer obeying the truth. That's a situation that we all have got to be on guard about. It's possible that though we once knew the truth, we could fall away from it, and that would be a foolish thing to do. And one of the most graphic word pictures, I think, that's contained anywhere in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 20, Peter describes those who know the truth and are obedient to it, but then fall away. Read that with me again. In 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 20, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, stop there for a minute, to certainly understand that he's identifying someone who has been a Christian, right? Someone who's been saved through obedience to the truth. He says, then they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. 
For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Might stop there to ask, why would that be so? Why would the latter end be worse than the first? I mean, if you were lost at first and now you're lost again, what's the difference, someone might ask? I believe the answer to that, as we have explained before, is to once know the truth and accept it, but then turn your back on it, makes that truth have less power to influence you, to bring you to repentance, to get you to do the right thing. So you put yourself in a very precarious situation to have known the truth and obeyed it, but then turn your back on it. It doesn't mean that you can't come back, but it makes it harder to do that. And he goes on to describe, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the salad was washed to her wallowing in the mire. There's that, there's that graphic word picture uh, that, that Peter uses there at the end of the passage. It's a very dangerous thing to turn away from the truth having once known it. God says that that's a foolish thing to do. It makes one a fool. And so there are four groups of people, and they're all really, as we've suggested, sort of interrelated. But there are four groups of people that God calls a fool. We wouldn't be able to do that. We're forbidden to use that expression. But God can because he sees men's hearts perfectly and knows everything. He's the one who tells us that these people are fools. Those who say there is no God, those who leave God out of their plans, those who hear the word but fail to obey it, those that obey but then turn away from the truth. Now, what's the value? What's the value of that exercise, learning those things? Well, obviously, we want to avoid falling into that category, right? Uh, it'd be bad enough if, as we were leaving here this morning, and maybe you're halfway out in the parking lot there, and someone walks up and says, "You know, look at that guy there. There goes there goes a real there goes a real foolish guy." That'd be bad enough if some other people thought we were foolish. I, I mean, I, I don't I I want to conduct myself in such a way that even other men don't think I'm a foolish individual. I want to tell you, it'd be far more serious if the God of Heaven looked at me and said, "There goes a fool." We've got to avoid that at all costs. What's your situation this morning? Have we, have we described anything that might pertain to you? Are you being foolish in the eyes of God? If so, you need to change that immediately. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to do so. Upon hearing the truth, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sin. We're ready to assist you in that obedience this morning. We'd be glad and excited to do so. If you're a Christian already, but you've slipped away, remember, God identifies that as a foolish thing. Don't remain in that condition any longer. Come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.